Welcome to The Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. There are many approaches to cognitive behavioral therapies. Based on a 1982 survey, Albert Ellis was considered the second most influential psychotherapist in history, following Carl Rogers as number one, and he was even ahead of Sigmund Freud, who was number three. Many people do not know that the late Dr. Ellis is considered one of the originators of psychotherapy to cognitive-based approaches. His approach is known as rational emotive therapy. Joining us today is Robert Heller, a psychologist in Palm Beach County, who is going to explain rational emotive therapy and how it is used. Dr. Heller, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. I had the pleasure of attending a lecture by Dr. Ellis when I was a student, and I was impressed that his ideas were designed to help patients understand how their own beliefs and approaches to things might contribute to their own emotional pain. Let's begin, if you would, with an overview of cognitive therapy and then of rational emotive therapy. Tell us a little bit about it. Cognitive therapy and rational emotive therapy are remarkably similar. In fact, Dr. Ellis developed rational emotive which is now called, by the way, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy, around 1955, just a little bit before Dr. Aaron Beck developed cognitive therapy. The ideas are very similar in terms of focusing mainly on the extreme importance of attitudes, thoughts, and beliefs in determining our feelings and emotions. How does someone know if they're feeling depression or anxiety, whether they need a cognitive-based therapy or they need a medication-based therapy, or perhaps a mixture? How do, how do they know that? That's not really something that I decide as a therapist. Most clients, in my experience, if they can, they prefer not to rely on, on medication if they can in any way learn how to help themselves without medication, that's their preferred mode. And oftentimes with rational emotive behavior therapy, we are able to help clients to learn how to manage their own feelings and emotions. Will rational therapy work for everyone? That's a good question. I don't think anything works for everyone, but it's certainly been used with many different patient populations and many different problems with a great deal of success in many cases. Like anything else, it's going to also depend on the client's motivation, the skill of the therapist, and other kinds of factors. So let's take a look at something more specific. Let's say a patient is suffering from some anxiety. How would you approach it? How would you outline it offer a plan of intervention? What sort of therapeutic techniques do you do? Walk us through, shall we say, a typical case. And I realize this is a lot of hypothetical material in this, but what would be a typical way that a rational emotive behavioral therapist would look at someone with anxiety? What, what questions would you ask? That's a great question. First of all, let me say that the initial presentation is very similar to what most other therapists would do. In other words, we take a comprehensive assessment of the client when they come in. We establish rapport and develop a relationship. We take a look at all the factors that might contribute to where they are. Now, having said that, the lens that I look through as a rational emotive behavior therapist is really the client's thoughts, attitudes, perceptions, and beliefs. So for example, someone may come in with anxiety and depression, and as we talk, they're basically describing themselves as being socially phobic, very anxious in social situations. In REBT, we use basically the notion of the ABC approach of emotion. So A stands for the action or the activating event. In this case, it might be 
a male wanting to approach a female in a social conversation. So that might be the typical presentation. The problem is, for people with social anxiety, they immediately feel a high degree of anxiety. In the ABC approach, the emotion, or in this case the anxiety, is the C, the emotional consequence. Most people mistakenly believe, well, you see, whenever I go in a social situation, it causes me to feel anxious. Well, we know that's not true because not everyone feels anxious in social situations. So we look for the cause. The cause in REBT is the Bs, the beliefs. What's the person thinking? What are they telling themselves to make themselves anxious in the social situation? We use a Socratic method in helping the client figure out for themselves, for the most part, what those beliefs are. But the cores tend to be an overconcern about being rejected, that somehow the person is going to go into that situation they're going to try to initiate some conversation. It's not going to go very well. The female in this, in this scenario will find fault or criticize or belittle the person, essentially walk away from them, and they'll feel very badly about the situation and about themselves. So the anxiety then takes on a role of its own. They develop anticipatory anxiety, can fearing those kinds of situations, getting more and more anxious as they approach the situation, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because when they're in a state of high anxiety, they can't really function very well. They kind of freeze, they may stutter, they may lose their focus, and they don't do a very good job. And then depression comes in oftentimes as a result of that because then they put themselves down, they become self-critical, they say, what's wrong with me? How can I be this way? They make all kinds of faulty generalizations, such as, I'll never find anyone. I'm going to be alone and lonely for the rest of my life, and so forth. So they get two problems for the price of one, the anxiety to start and then the depression on top of it. It seems so obvious. It just seems so clear-cut that when people fear something that ought not to be feared, like going and asking a young girl to dance or something like that, that this is the approach. It reminds me of a story many years old of a young man who went to a dance. This, I'm going to mirror a lot of what you said. Who went to a dance, saw a girl he wanted to dance, to ask her to dance, and he was afraid. So one of his friends said, don't be afraid, and went back and forth. He couldn't do it. And another friend here, try this. What's that? Marijuana. So the guy uses a little bit of marijuana. His fears drop. He goes, he asks the girl to dance, she says sure, and he's made the association that the marijuana has made this possible, when in fact it has merely covered it up, which is contrary to the deeper, shall we say, therapeutic notion that you're speaking about. Fascinating, it, you, your approach is so simple. The first part of it is really understanding the connection between the thoughts and feelings and then the resulting behavior. The second part, although simple, is not necessarily easy, which is why it's called rational motive behavioral therapy, because ultimately you need to make a change in the behavior. So it's not just the thought and attitude that it wouldn't be so bad if I approached this gal to dance and she said no, but it's actually getting the person to do it because as soon as the anxiety gets triggered, that also then triggers kind of a fear and avoidance response in most of us. And so we have to rethink our view of that as something which is natural and expected, but not really dangerous. 
and remind ourselves and remind our clients that by actually behaviorally going through that process will eventually reduce that anxiety. Do you spend any time or does the concept of rationally emotive behavioral therapy, does it spend a lot of time looking at where these fears came from or is that more in the purview of the analyst? It can be, but usually not. If clients come in and they're really interested in developing awareness and insight as to how these ideas got formulated and, and the source of it, sure, we'll spend some time figuring that out. It's usually not too difficult. It could be being rejected early on. It could be viewing peers getting rejected. It could be watching things on television. So while it's interesting and occasionally useful, it's not always the most relevant part of the puzzle. In REBT, the main idea is in changing the beliefs regardless of how they came to be. So that's the main thrust of it. Now, the behavioral part comes in in getting the person to actually change what they do. So taking your example of the person who was fearing rejection about asking the gal to dance, we actually use something called the shame attack exercise. Explain it. Yeah, the shame attack exercise is getting you to do the very thing you feel ashamed or embarrassed about. In this case, it would be the shame or embarrassment about asking someone to dance and her refusing his request. And actually, an interesting thing happened when I did this with a client some years ago. So he was given eventually the behavioral assignment of going to this club and asking as many gals to dance as it was required to get 10 consecutive rejections rather than acceptances. And he was kind of taken back, but I explained the idea that his main problem was fear of rejection and that he needed to work on overcoming it. So the next week, and I asked him, well, how did it go? And he said, well, it went pretty well, sort of. And I said, so what do you mean, sort of? He said, well, it started out as usual. I went to that dancing club. I found someone I was interested in asking to dance. I immediately felt the anxiety, but then I told myself, no big deal. The worst that could happen is you get rejected and it wouldn't prove that you're awful or worthless or inadequate. So I got my courage up and I went over and I asked her to dance. And to my amazement, she said yes. We just had such a good time, he said, that I totally forgot about the rest of the assignment and we just spent the most of the evening together and I've got a date with her next Friday. He was successful much earlier on, but the process basically worked. Well, he was partially successful. He was able to see through experience that one of his ideas that if he asked someone to dance, he would invariably reject it. He saw that that was untrue, but he didn't get to the point of actually experiencing the rejection and reinterpreting it as not a big deal. And that's ultimately where we want clients to be. We want them to overcome the notion that they need someone else's approval to feel good about themselves, and that basically they can learn to accept and tolerate life's disappointments without feeling horrible and without putting themselves down. So they have to have the experience of some success. It's not just enough to understand that it came from a history of being rejected or abused as a child or whatever, but they have to have that experience and then put it in perspective. There must be people who don't have enough of an ego structure to do this. I would imagine their treatment plans are much more complicated and drawn out. Do you have to sometimes become very, like going back to elementary school, to teach people from start to really go step by step 
to get better? Depending on where the person is at, you do take baby steps at times. You do. You want the person to stretch but not break. You want to shape the experiences you suggest to them in a way that allows them to have enough confidence to try out, and we call these experiment, and see what the results are. So it becomes a win-win situation, and either they see that what they expected really was over-exaggerated, or that they learn to deal more successfully with what it was they were fearing in the first place. It would seem that if you're working with children, that you would also have to apply these concepts or at least teach the family, the parents, not to limit the child, perhaps be overly critical, to give the child a chance to have some success. So I could see it being multi-layered when a 10-year-old comes in who's really phobic. You have to look at the family dynamics as well. At times, that is true. At times, there are many factors that contribute to a fear or a phobia or a pattern of behavior. And certainly, families can uh, unintentionally be strengthening or reinforcing a particular phobia in a child. So we need to take a look at that as well. Oftentimes, in working with children, we can use the same processes and ideas. We just bring it down to a level that they can better understand. So for little kids, for example who are bothered by someone not liking them or someone teasing them, we teach something called tease tolerance. Rather than necessarily try to get the other person to change their behavior, in this case, the other kid who's teasing them, we get them to reappraise what their view is. And to some degree, it's not all that different than the old nursery rhyme, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me. And we get them in their own ways to adapt that kind of thinking so that they're less bothered by that sort of behavior. And in most cases, if it's only verbal kind of teasing, whoever's doing the teasing, if they see it, it doesn't really get a rise out of the individual, they stop doing it because they're not getting the reinforcement any further. Interesting. And it just struck me as we're talking that I could see immigrants coming to this country who don't know how to engage in a lot of our social activities, don't know how to make a job application or stand up and speak because they may think their English isn't good enough or whatever it is. They could use a little bit of this as well, since this is really training in, in looking at how to approach a problem and deal with it rationally. It's interesting. It would be an interesting overlap. It would be interesting to see if the people who deal with the immigrants are taking some of the flavor from rational, emotive behavioral therapy and using it. There often is a discussion about the role of religion. And I know that one of the things that Ellis did when he was going through his life is he shifted back and forth in terms of his approach to religion. But ultimately, he began to say that a belief in a, in a living God can be psychologically very healthy. It gives a sense of security to a lot of people. The people that you're looking at, can we say that they are insecure or am I being very overgeneralizing by saying that this is an insecure group of people? and you're teaching them how to be secure in their own thinking and their own beliefs, correcting their beliefs and making them more secure about what they're going to do. Alice originally talked about that literally all of us are born into the world predisposed to what he called have stinking thinking, so that we're all vulnerable on a continuum to being disturbed in various ways. And so this is really kind of a re-education process, a positive mental health approach to helping virtually all of us think better and therefore feel better. 
is rational emotive behavioral therapy more or less a shorter therapeutic endeavor or a longer therapeutic endeavor? We tend to think of psychoanalysis as a very long-term process. Is there a rule of thumb? Is there an average number of treatments or months that are needed? It's certainly going to depend on the number of problems, the uh, intensity and severity of the problems, the resiliency and coping skills that the individual has to bring to the table from the beginning. But in general, REBT is, a, is considered a short-term approach with long-term benefits. That's lovely. In general, most clients see progress and improvement within a half dozen to a dozen sessions. Many problems that people come into can be reasonably handled within 20 sessions. It's interesting to point out that the American Psychiatric Association has recently published a guideline on depression, and they list right at the very top the introduction of psychotherapy. Now, when they use psychotherapy, they're using it in a broad sweep, which would include your work and other types of cognitive work and even analytic work. But the notion of what we used to call the verbal cure, as opposed to the medication cure, has risen to the top as being a critical element in a successful intervention in anxiety. Well, they limited it only to depression in this particular publication. But it's fascinating that it just doesn't go away. It's, it's, it's always going to be here, I think. I guess that's what makes us human. Yeah. yeah. The other interesting thing about something like depression, as you look into it in more depth, you'll find that oftentimes mild depressions are self-limiting and they're going to get better on them by themselves or with almost any form of treatment. It's when you get to the more intense types of depression, the more severe depression, where approaches like rational emotive behavior therapy administered by experienced and competent practitioners seem to make the biggest difference. When beginning students under supervision administer cognitive therapies to more seriously depressed patients, the results are not particularly good. When the same kind of approach is used by senior and experienced cognitive behavioral therapists, the results tend to be substantially better. That's very encouraging and very, very, very promising. Dr. Robert Heller is a psychologist in Palm Beach County. He is a practitioner of the Rationally Emotive Behavioral Therapy. This has been very interesting, and I hope that some people will have another option now when they need to think about where they're going to deal with their psychological problems. Dr. Heller, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure.